Well, here we are, the last Sunday before Christmas. Where does the time go? It feels like Advent should just be starting. And so many Christmas presents yet to order through Amazon. (laughs) I truly believe that Amazon Prime is one of the greatest gifts God has ever given humanity, but that's my own view. (laughs) As I mentioned before, the scripture for my sermon today is the same as the gospel reading I did just a few moments ago. It's the, the story of the birth of Jesus according to Matthew. Now, this is actually not the most popular version in Matthew uh, for the birth of Jesus. The most popular one is the one you just heard part of read by Joanne, which is from Luke. It's also the one that you'll always hear on the Peanuts Christmas. So it's the one most people are familiar with. But we are saving that for a longer reading version for the Christmas Eve service. The version that we want to look at today, and do we have that slide? Okay. Matthew's account is quite succinct. It's, it's very short. It's almost curt in its brevity. He does not go into a lot of detail about things. He even starts out with what amounts to, um, okay, listen up, Jesus' birth, here's how it happened. And he jumps right into it. In this passage, I think it helps us to understand that of the three synoptic Gospels, the same-seeing Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew's Gospel is the one that is written most specifically for a Jewish audience, for Jewish Christians or Jews who might be considering Jesus as the Messiah. We know this is true because Matthew assumes when he refers to a Jewish ritual or a custom that his readers will know what he's talking about. He never bothers to explain these things. You compare that to Mark's Gospel, for instance, which was written primarily for a Gentile audience, and Mark always explains what he means whenever he makes reference to something that Jewish people would naturally understand, a custom, a ritual, an activity, an event. So Mark understood that his audience had to be given the information to explain that. Matthew does not. And then, of course, Luke's Gospel is the most universal of all, which makes sense since Luke is the only non-Jewish writer of any book in the Bible. Now, Matthew here shows his assumptions about the readers being Jewish right away in the passage when he writes this. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And you'll notice that I've said Joseph was a righteous man, Some translations, as you will see here, say faithful to the law. I actually like righteous man better because it better explains the context. Matthew assumes here that we will understand what it means for a Jewish couple to be pledged to be married. And he assumes we understand what would normally happen if an unmarried young Jewish woman was found to be pregnant while she was engaged. But since we are Jewish, at least I assume most of you aren't Jewish, Let's talk about what that means in this situation. For a Jewish couple at the start of the first century, an engagement was a very serious business. In fact, the primary commitment that you made was in the engagement more so than in the marriage ceremony. For a couple to be engaged in this time would require a a contractual agreement between the two people, and more importantly, between their families. It was a legally binding contract that they were to be married. And it was also considered religiously binding. So much so that everything about being married pretty much existed for an engaged couple except for consummating the marriage sexually. Engaged people were often even called husband and wife 
in the Old Testament. But unlike today, when a marriage can be broken, or rather when an engagement, well, marriage too, can be broken simply by either party saying they've changed their mind, in that day, breaking an engagement required a legal action, very similar to a legal divorce today. And usually breaking an engagement involved public statements of why the engagement should be broken. Now, in this case, Joseph was planning to break his engagement to Mary because it was discovered she was pregnant, and he knew he was not the father. Really not a good thing for a young Jewish woman in the first century Palestine. In most such cases in those days, a righteous Jewish man, one who followed the law, as Joseph is described here, would have denounced his fiancée to the priests of the temple in order to demonstrate that he was not guilty of doing something against the law, that he was not the father of the unborn child. The priests then would have judged the pregnant woman publicly, announced that she was a sinner, and the potential was even there that they could have stoned her as either an adulteress or as a fornicator. Very serious business indeed. But when Matthew says that Joseph is a righteous man, he doesn't just mean, as uh, this version gives it on the slide, that he obeyed the Jewish law. It meant more than that. To be righteous would have meant that to the Jews, but this also means that Joseph was a good man. He he sought to do the right thing. And because he did not want to publicly condemn Mary, have her life destroyed, and potentially even be stoned to death, although many men would have thought that necessary to save their face if their fiancé was found to be pregnant. Instead, Joseph plans simply to sign the papers to legally break the divorce and let Mary go on her way without making it a public issue. But God had other plans. Matthew tells us, But after he, that is Joseph, had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. An angel, and traditionally this is believed to be the archangel Gabriel, who is the messenger angel, and he is the one who is identified as having spoken to Mary about the fact that she would conceive a child, that the archangel tells Joseph to stay engaged to Mary and to marry her because she's carrying a child that is not conceived by a man, but by the Holy Spirit, meaning Mary is still a virgin and has not been unfaithful in her pledge to marry Joseph. But then we get the kicker. The angel tells Joseph that the child will be a son and that his name will be Jesus. This is the Greek version. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua, what we usually call Joshua. And Yeshua or Joshua means the Lord saves. And that this Jesus would save the people from their sins. That's why it says you will give them the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. It literally means the Lord saves. In other words, the angel is telling Joseph that Mary's baby would be the Messiah whom the Jews had been waiting for for centuries. Now it's important to note here, too, that the angel calls Joseph, Joseph, son of David. That means Joseph is a descendant of King David, just as Mary was a descendant of King David. They were both of the house of David. And we know that because in the New Testament, the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke show us that both Mary and Joseph 
trace their lineage back to King David. And while Jesus was Mary's child, he was the legal child, after they were married, of Joseph. And so there was not only the biological connection, but the legal connection as well. Now the Jews in that day would have been very aware of the prophecies about the coming Messiah. Especially Jews like Joseph, who were from the line of David, because it was from the house of David that the prophets of the Old Testament said the Messiah was to come. The Old Testament is full of references about the coming Messiah. So much so that the people knew exactly what to look for. They knew what to expect. They had very clear expectations for this Messiah. And the very Jewish Matthew shows us in his gospel that those expectations were clear by the fact that he quotes the Old Testament 47 times in his gospel. The gospel of Matthew quotes Old Testament prophecies 47 times, and in almost every case it has to do with prophecies about the coming Messiah. In fact, some Old Testament commentators have suggested that the awareness of the coming Messiah was so much a part of the Jewish mindset at the time when Jesus was born that it's possible every young Jewish girl who was from the tribe of Judah, the line of David, would probably have wondered whether they might be the one who would give birth to the Messiah. They might have been the ones that dreamed that they would be chosen to give birth to the one who would become a king like David. That's how strong the Messianic expectation was for the Jews at that time. And they knew exactly what they were looking for. How was that? Well, it's because God had told them in very specific terms. It would be a baby who was born in the town of Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah in the family line of Jesse and of his son, King David. It would be a baby that is miraculously born of a virgin, as we heard read from Isaiah today. And a baby who would become the ruler that the people so desperately needed. The last couple of weeks we've talked about the fact that Jesus came because we needed him to come. And this was the situation for the Jews in the first century as well. And Matthew confirms this exact prophetic expectation in the next verses of his of our gospel reading when it says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with a child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Lord had promised that the Messiah would be born as a baby born to a virgin. And we have enormous numbers of details about that. When you look in the New Testament, the great sermons of Peter and of Paul and of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, all of them refer to the Old Testament. And particularly they refer to how it is that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation. And now we have again stated that the baby would be born from a virgin. That's the sort of thing that happens every day. In fact, um, never except once, as far as we know. It's interesting that today it is not medically impossible for a virgin to bear a child. With um, in vitro fertilization and implantation of eggs, there's even a TV show, I mentioned this in our, in our Sunday School for Adults, called Jane the Virgin. I've never seen the show, I'm not vouching for it or anything else, but I understand the premise behind it is this young woman, who is a virgin, went in for some sort of medical treatment and they made a mistake and they, they fertilized her, they implanted in her, and so she's having a baby and yet she's never had sexual relations. So we acknowledge the fact that can happen today. 
Well, certainly there was not the medical technology for it to happen in the first century, and yet it did. We are told that it did. It's as though God is saying, look, I want to make sure you get this. I want to make sure you don't confuse it. You don't find some other excuse for it. So I'm going to give you lots of things to look for about this Messiah that I'm sending. Write these down. Bethlehem, check. Tribe of Judah, check. House of Jesse, check. Descendant of David. That that really whittles it down to a fairly small potential number of Jewish mothers. But God then gives a conclusive sign, one that nobody is going to misunderstand. Oh, and yes, the virgin will bear a child. The Messiah will be born of a virgin. In Isaiah 7, which you heard read this morning and which Matthew is quoting here, God is frustrated with his people, the Jews. And so he says that he will give them an indisputable sign so that they will finally get on with it and stop waffling. As you heard read this morning from Isaiah 7, Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, many people today have trouble with this idea that Jesus was born to Mary when she was still a virgin, even though medical science says that's possible today. By all that we know about biology, apart from some very technical medical intervention for a virgin to bear a child, is considered physically impossible. It does not happen apart from laboratories and, you know, and, and petri dishes and all of that kind of thing. But that's exactly why God did it. So that there would not be any confusion. So that people would not say, oh, I wonder which one of these babies that were born of a virgin is really the Messiah. It is a specific pointer to who it is that is the fulfillment of God's promise for the expected Messiah. And why should we have problems with this miracle of the virgin birth? And I know people who do have problems with it. If we don't feel we can accept that Jesus was born to a virgin, then we have to ask ourselves, what other part of the Jesus story are we not able or willing to accept? Turning water into wine, walking on water, calming the storm, healing the lepers, making the lame to walk or the blind to see, feeding 5,000 people with three loaves and two fishes. Yes, if we cannot accept the miracle of the virgin birth, one of the key signs that God gave to help us identify Jesus as the Messiah, if we cannot accept his virgin birth, then how can we accept any of it? Where do we draw the line and say, God is able to do this much, but not the rest. Because everything about Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal, co-eternal Son of God, was and is a miracle. There is no part of the Jesus story that is not miraculous. If you cannot accept miracles, you cannot accept Jesus. I am, as most of you have heard me say before, a firm believer that God gave us a brain and he gave us the ability for rational thought because he wants us to use them. But if we read the biblical miracles and we start parsing out which ones we think we can believe from those we don't think we can believe based on some scientific presumptions, we eventually will find ourselves having poked so many holes in the New Testament that nothing will be left that has any meaning. And for us today, if we struggle so much with accepting the truth of the virgin birth, we must realize 
that the virgin birth, which again technically is scientifically possible, is not the most astonishing miracle in the story of Jesus. The most astonishing miracle would have to be that Jesus died on the cross, he was physically dead and buried. On the third day, he rose again as a victor over death and the grave, sin and the devil. Now, that's a miracle for you. Compared to the resurrection, the physical resurrection of a dead man, the virgin birth is not that big a deal. So if you're one of the ones who says you can't accept the virgin birth, does that mean you can't accept Jesus' resurrection? Because if you believe the miracle of a baby born to a virgin isn't possible, then how can someone come back from the dead? And if you cannot accept Jesus' resurrection, then, brothers and sisters, how can you be saved? Because our salvation, everything about our Christian faith, is based upon our belief that Jesus, who was fully man and fully God, died, was really dead, and was physically physically resurrected from the dead, and ascended into heaven and is coming again. That is what Christianity is. Despite the tendency of our culture today to water it all down and say Christianity means being good to other people. Christianity means being acting like Jesus said we should act in terms of loving one another. That is not what Christianity is. That's what Christianity should look like. But Christianity is believing in the risen Christ. And if we believe that, the other miracles should be fairly easy. Now, at this point, I want to double back and point out that the title of my sermon today is Expectations. As we approach Christmas, we need to realize that all through human history, almost from the time of the fall in the garden, God has been promising that he would redeem us, that someday we would be healed, we would be made whole. The fact that every society that has ever existed has had some idea that there was something wrong with us, that people, humanity has something broken in us. God has been saying throughout all of human history that someday we would be healed and made whole and rejoined into fellowship with him, which is what we were made for and what we all desire. God promised. God promised again and again and again, and through the prophets and the Old Testament writers, he gave us lots and lots of details on how he would fulfill that promise. And then he did fulfill that promise. In very simple language, Matthew tells us this as he finishes this first chapter of his gospel. When he says in verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Jesus, Yeshua. It means the Lord saves. Emmanuel, another name given to Jesus. It means God is with us. Messiah, the anointed one of God. The Lord promised to save us. He promised to send the Messiah, his own son, to us. He promised that the people walking in darkness would see a great light, that the people walking in the shadow of death would need fear death no longer because they would be given a savior. God promised He told us to expect it in very fine detail. He told us what to look for to know that he had fulfilled his promise. And then he did it. Through a humble and holy young woman 
And through the care of a good and righteous man, God fulfilled his promise, and Jesus, the Messiah, Emmanuel, came to us. And the fulfillment of that promise is what we celebrate this week as we have the final approach to Christmas. It is the reason why we celebrate this time of year. For the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Amen.